Jack is a divorced, recovering alcoholic actor who's been in an institution for three years after a nervous breakdown and what might have been a suicide attempt. It's been four years since he acted in a film. Now he's getting out with the promise of an acting job in Rome by a man he's worked for many times before, a director named Kruger. The acting work may not be there when he arrives, but Carlotta, his ex-wife, Veronica, a young beautiful woman, Davy, a young angry actor, and Carla, Kruger's wife, who hates him, will be. Is Jack ready to be on his own? Can he survive his problems as he spends two weeks in another town? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days. My name is Jeff Kelly, and this is our 32nd episode. This is a podcast of film and film history. On this episode, I'm going to talk about a film that, until this week, I had never seen before. It's a film called Two Weeks in Another Town from 1962. Two Weeks in Another Town is one of those films that attack Hollywood or, or fame or success or, or all of it, I guess. In a way, it's a, it's a bit of a bite-the-hand-that-feeds-you type movie. It's one of those... I'm going to expose the dark side of the industry that I work for, and it's going to be shocking. And I've always had a bit of a, I don't know, distaste for these kind of movies. You know, stories about how awful it is to be rich and famous and all the problems that come with with success. However, one film that I love that has this basic premise is the Gong Show movie. Seriously. It's a film in which Chuck Barris can't take the fame and success that comes with his TV show, and he runs away. I mean, it's so remarkably silly, it's almost like a parody of movies like Two Weeks in Another Town. I don't know if that was Chuck Barris' intent, but that's the way it worked for me. Anyway, all that being said, I did enjoy this movie. I mean, how could you not? With stars like Kurt Douglas, Edward G. Robinson, Sid Cerise, George Hamilton, Claire Trevor, all of whom are remarkable actors, it's worth a watch. And it was directed by Vincent Manelli, based on a book by Erwin Shaw, and it was produced by John Houseman. And Kurt Douglas is in all his Kurt Douglasness in this film, you know. There's great scenes of intense craziness and anger that. Kurt is well known for. He goes over the top in such wonderful ways. See, he plays an actor, Jack Andrus, who, as the film starts, is in a sanitarium recovering from a nervous breakdown after barely surviving a car crash that might or might not have been a suicide attempt. He's a divorced alcoholic who had been once a very successful actor but now has hit rock bottom. He's offered an acting job by a hard-nosed director, Maurice Kruger, played by Edward G. Robinson. He's making a picture in Italy. 
The two had worked together many times in the past and have sort of a love-hate relationship with Kruger sort of being a, a mentor to Jack. And Kruger's having problems of his own. He was once a major director in Hollywood, but now he's making a film in Italy for a producer who's only worried about making money. The producer has given him two weeks to complete the film, or he'll finish it himself. That includes all the dubbing, as Italian films, at least at the time, were shot without sound and the dialogue dubbed in later. When Douglas arrives, he finds that the job he was offered isn't going to happen, so he takes on the job of doing the dubbing. Two of the stars he has to deal with are one named Brizelli, played by Rosanna Schiaffino, a sexy but spoiled actress, and Davy Drew, a handsome, up-and-coming, but angry young actor, played by George Hamilton. He also has to deal with Kruger's angry and resentful wife, Clara, played by Clara Trevor, who makes it clear from the start that she hates Douglas. Douglas begins dating a beautiful young woman named Veronica, played by Dahlia Levy, but she's really in love with George Hamilton's character. It's a whole thing. When Edward G. Robinson has a heart attack, Douglas takes over as the director. Also, there's a slight subplot in which Jack's ex-wife Carlotta, who's played by Sid Charisse, had at one time an affair with Kruger, and that's why the two had a falling out. And now Carlotta wants to get back together with Jack, even though she's married to this really rich guy. Yes, if it sounds like a bit of a soap opera, I agree. And that's your whole basic setup, but it's really a story about Douglas's character and his journey to self-discovery. The film was a box office failure when it was released, and I'll get more into that later. Now, Vincent Minnelli, he's, of course, the director of such classic films as Madame Bovary, Father of the Bride, An American in Paris, The Bad and the Beautiful, Brigadoon, The Long, Long Trailer, Kismet, Gigi, Lust for Life, Designing Women, and The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Quite a wide range of movies there. But it's The Bad and the Beautiful from 1952 that's of interest here. The film is also about Hollywood and the film industry, and it was also produced by John Houseman and starred Kurt Douglas. The film was a massive success, and it won five Academy Awards out of its six nominations. Yet it was not nominated for Best Picture or Director. In Two Weeks in Another Town, we see all the characters go to a screening room and watch The Bad and the Beautiful, and they all comment about just what a wonderful picture it was. And it is a great movie, by the way. So, ten years after The Bad and the Beautiful, the three main men of that film get together again and make another film about filmmaking. Houseman at the time was just getting back into film production, and he picked Minnelli to direct. Minnelli, like the director in two weeks, was looking for a hit. His last film, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, had been a critical and financial disaster. His two movies before that, The Bells Are Ringing and Home from the Hills, both in 1960, also lost money. So perhaps in Two Weeks in Another Town, Minnelli was actually making a film about himself. I, I look at this film I'm shooting. I like it. 
What if I'm wrong? It's another calamity. Where do I go from here? Took me two years to get this job, and that was a fluke. How can a man go wrong and not know why? What's happened to me? Jack looked at my picture. He hated every foot of it, I could tell. <sighs> what does he know? Now, of course, if you're going to make a film about the making of a film, you need the cold-hearted, money-grubbing producer. This film is not an exception. Mino Doro plays the producer, and he's only interested in money, making money. He makes it clear that he isn't concerned about art or quality. He even has deals made where, as long as this movie is made on time, whether it ever gets shown into a theater or not, he's going to make a lot of money. Don't you want the best movie you can get? No. Don't you have any pride in what pictures you put your name on? No. The films I produce make money. And you know why? Because I'm an international peddler. On this film, I will make 472,000 not lire, dollars. Even if this film never shows in one single theater. Provided, please, that it does not cost me one lira more than our contract says. Boo, we all say as the audience, you're evil. How dare you put money over the creation of art? This got me thinking about how studio heads and producers are often thought of in Hollywood. I mean, aren't they the ones who ruin films by their interference? Last week, we talked about Terry Gilliam and his constant fight with the studio system. He battled long and hard about the changes they made to Brazil. And truthfully, Gilliam's version of Brazil was better than the studio edit, but in a strange way, he sort of brought that upon himself. It seems the studio is always coming under fire for messing with the artist's vision. But I don't know if that's really fair. I mean, just look at Eric Stroheim's Greed. I think his original cut of the film, which was silent, was like eight hours long. And then he cut it down to four and a half hours long before the studio took it away and cut it down to under two hours. Greed was a very expensive film to make, and the studio wanted to make their money back. You see, it costs a lot of money to make a film, and someone has to worry about the profits. Without profits, no movie would get made. Now, one who considers himself an artist might think, but this is my art. I refuse to compromise. While the money people are saying, but I need to make money or I won't have a job. It happens all the time. A couple of expensive films fail at the box office, and all the executives within the studio are fired. Studios have gone under due to a string of box office failures. And although the artists don't want to admit it, filmmaking usually requires compromise. I mean, there are very few Stanley Kubricks out there. And if you think about it, if they let every wannabe auteur make their passion projects without studio interference, every studio would be bankrupt. Just watch a bunch of indie films. Many of them are well done, but they're far from commercial. And trust me, I would like to side with the artists. But one must remember, the studio is literally putting up millions of dollars for every project. 
And like it or not, they deserve to have final say in the project. Only directors that they truly trust are allowed to have final cut privileges. And if you're a filmmaker and you don't like the system, hey, find another way to get your $75 million. Now, in the film, Two Weeks in Another Town, not only is the producer played as the bad guy, but also the real producers of Two Weeks in Another Town are also, in many people's eyes, considered the bad guy. We'll get to that in a minute. Sorry about that, I sort of went off on a tangent there. But you know, I've talked way too long and I need a break. So why don't we have our special guest come in and talk about other films that talk about filmmaking. Take it away, Mr. Jeff Kelly. Well, hello everybody, it's time for Jeff's Jargon, and today I thought I'd talk about other films that deal with the film industry. And listen, I know what you're thinking, what happened to Nancy? Nancy's on a bit of a break because of, well, life, but hopefully she'll be back soon. So you're going to have to deal with me for the breaks. Now, one of the first few films made about the film industry, as far as I know, were films like Show People from 1928, Make Me a Star from 1932, What Price Hollywood from 1932, and The Stand-In from 1937. And I have to admit, I've never seen any of those films. But in 1941, we have Sullivan's Travels, a delightful comedy satire written and directed by Preston Sturgis. It stars Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. It's the story of a Hollywood director who sets out to experience life as a homeless person in order to gain life experiences for his next movie. This is a a delightful comedy that I really enjoyed. But of course, I think I would enjoy any movie that stars Veronica Lake. One day I'm going to do a podcast about Lake. It's, It's a very interesting story. In 1950, we have Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. A true classic, obviously, and I'm assuming you've all seen it before. If not, what's wrong with you? In 1952, we have Singing in the Rain, starring Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and of course, the wonderful Debbie Reynolds. This is a charming musical comedy film that deals with the difficult transition from silent pictures to talking pictures in the 1920s. It's another must-watch. A couple of dramas that are pretty good are Day of the Locust from 75 and The Last Tycoon from 76. Day of the Locust was written by John Schlesinger and stars Donald Sutherland, Karen Black, William Atherson, Burgess Meredith, John Hillerman, and Geraldine Page. The film is about the alienation and desperation of a desperate group of Individuals whose dreams of Hollywood success have failed to come true. The Last Tycoon is an Elia Kazan film that stars Robert De Niro, Tony Curtis, Robert Mitchum, Jack Nicholson, Donald Pleasance, Gene Moreau, and Teresa Russell. I believe it's loosely based on the short life of Irving Thalberg, but it's based on an unfinished F. Scott Fitzgerald novel and is the story of a movie producer who is slowly working himself to death. A couple of very underrated films are The Stuntman from 1980 and S.O.B. from 1981. The Stuntman has Steve Railsback as a man who, while running from the police, wanders onto a film set and becomes a stuntman. P. 
Peter O'Toole plays the perhaps crazy director, and Barbara Hershey is an actress and the love interest in the film. SOB is a film in which Blake Edwards attacks the film industry after his bad experience after making the film Darlene Lily. The film is most notable for Julie Andrews showing her breasts, but it's a wonderful dark comedy. Richard Mulligan plays the director. Need I say more? Sweet Liberty from 1976 is an Alan Alda film in which he plays a historian whose book on the American Revolution is being turned into a Hollywood motion picture. In 1987, we have the American satirical comedy Hollywood Shuffle. Robert Townsend co-wrote and directed the movie, and he plays a black actor who's constantly being told that he's not black enough for certain roles. The film is semi-autobiographical and is about the racial stereotyping of African Americans in film and television. Before Christopher Guest was making films like Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman, he directed The Big Picture in 1989. This silly comedy has Kevin Bacon playing a recent film school graduate who's trying to get a film made in Hollywood. Jennifer Jason Lee, Michael McKeon, and Martin Short also appear in the film, along with tons of cameos. One of my favorite films about the film industry is Steve Martin's comedy Bowfinger from 1999. Starring Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, and Heather Graham, this film doesn't attack Hollywood, but is the story of an outsider, Bowfinger, played by Martin, who's trying to get a film made called Chubby Rain for $2,184 with major star Kit Ramsey, played by Murphy, who actually doesn't know he's appearing in the film. Murphy also plays his nerdy brother in a fantastic dual role. Other films that I enjoyed that deal with Hollywood are Gods and Monsters from 1998, Barton Fink from 1991, Chaplin from 1992, The Player also from 1992, Ed Wood from 1994, State and Maine from the year 2000, Mulholland Drive from 2001, Adaptation from 2002, The Aviator from 2004, Hollywoodland from 2006, and The Very Silly Tropic Thunder from 2008. All these films, in my humble opinion, are worth a watch. And one more film I should mention is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which reimagines the Sharon Tate murder, well, as not a murder. A film that I really enjoyed, which is not really about Hollywood, but the making of an independent movie, is Living in Oblivion from 1995. Steve Buscemi plays a director who's trying to get a scene from his independent film finished, but is plagued with all sorts of problems. It's one of my favorite films, and, and one day I'll talk about it on the podcast. Now listen, do you have any films about Hollywood or filmmaking that I failed to mention here? If so, let me know. I'll have the contact information for the podcast at the end of today's episode. Well, I'd like to thank Jeff for having me on the show. And now, well, let's get back to Jeff and the story of Two Weeks in Another Town. want your charity. If I'm through as an actor, I'm through. And to hell with you and the whole murderous business. And then what? 
You stupid, stubborn, washed-up ham! Without me, you're a nothing, just a nothing. Go on, go back to your crazy house and stay there. Thanks, Jeff. It's always good hearing from you, and I agree we need Nancy back. Anyway, let's get back to two weeks in another town. One of the best scenes in the film, which is near the end, has Kurt Douglas having a nervous breakdown and, well, he goes crazy while driving with Sid Charisse. Like much of this film, it's over the top. But Kirk, he plays crazy so damn well. scenes is when Edward G. Robinson goes home to his angry wife Claire Trevor. Now I love Claire Trevor. She's always wonderful. I mean, just watch Key Largo, right? A brilliant performance. But in this film, unfortunately she's not given a lot to work with and she's way over the top. Because I'm going to take you for every dime you've got. Every dime, Clara? You're slipping. Used to be every dollar. Now where do you think you're going? Down the hall, see Jack. Jack, bringing Jack Andrus here behind my back. To feed your ego, you fly over an actor you can't even use. Now look, Clara, I photographed a lot worse. It's only a little part, so shut up. Handing out $5,000 to a man who, who wouldn't even look at you for the past seven years. And who could blame him after what you did to him? You and Carlotta. Six years. Thank you, Clara. One scene that disturbed me a bit was when Veronica was talking to Kurt Douglas on the phone. Nine o'clock. Okay. I'll be the girl with a black eye. And Kirk responds by saying, Hey, why don't you stop going around with guys that give you black eyes? <laughs> to me, this is one of the saddest parts of the film. I don't get why Kirk laughs, as if it's funny, as if abuse is a joke. If I'm understanding it correctly, she's known for getting beaten by men. There's just something wrong there. I don't know. Now, when the film was all done and finished, the studio executives at MGM had problems with it, as well as the MPAA. They thought it was a little too adult with its adultery and fornication. And it also did really badly in test screenings. So, in an effort to make it a little more family-friendly... And without Minnelli's input, it was re-edited and about 15 minutes were cut out. Supposedly, there was an orgy scene that was cut and, and a few other scenes. Kurt Douglas later wrote in his 1988 autobiography that this was such an injustice to Vincent Minnelli, who had done such a wonderful job with the film, and an injustice to the pain public who could have had the experience of watching a very dramatic, meaningful film. They released it that way, emasculated. Now, John Hausman, 
the producer of the film, said it was doomed from the start and there were a lot of problems. Apparently, Minnelli was so taken by Fellini's La Dolce Vita that he wanted to make an American film that would top it. Now, screenwriter Charles Schnee's wife committed suicide before a final screenplay was finished, so the film went into production without a finished script. But as far as Minnelli, well, it's directed beautifully and looks great. It has some of the best shots of Rome ever captured on film. Now, I don't really consider this a great film, as some people do today. But, like I said, I did find it enjoyable to watch. But now it's time to find out what others thought about it. And, you know, for that, I always go to Rotten Tomatoes. This film gets a 90% score among critics, but only a 64% audience score. But somehow that seems right. Ashley H. gave it four and a half stars, and she wrote, This is an overlooked movie. Vintage Vincent Minnelli, and a classic of the genre. No one uses color like Vincent Minnelli, and with Rome and Chinachicha Chicha as a backdrop, the film is truly gorgeous. Kirk Douglas gives a terrific performance as a director recovering from a nervous breakdown and possibly on the verge of another while trying to shoot his comeback picture in the Eternal City. This film is a must-see if you're a fan of Minnelli and Douglas. While I agree with most of that, Ashley, I must nitpick a little. Douglas is an actor in the film, not the director. The director was Edward G. Robinson. Dallas H. gave it four stars, and he or she wrote, Such a good movie with solid acting performances. It's definitely worth watching, especially as part of a double feature with The Bad and the Beautiful, 1952. As always, I truly enjoy watching the classics with Kurt Douglas and Edward G. Robinson. Both rarely let you down. I can't argue with you, Dallas. I mean, I love both Kurt Douglas and Edward G. Robinson, and you're right, they rarely let you down, if at all. But I have a little to say on their acting, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. You know, like always, there are those that love a film and those that hate a film, and, well... A few other people have different opinions. William M. gave it only two and a half stars, and he wrote, Not a very good story, nor good performances by dot dot anyone. I'm not so sure. I mean, Edward G. Robinson never gives a bad performance. And finally, we have Anthony B., who gave it a half star, and he wrote, Thought this film was simply horrible. Horrible all being in capital letters. Apart from featuring Rome as eye candy, it is almost unbearable in its stupidity, predictability, and inevitable, and often nonsensical, plot lines. We'll never watch it again. Okay, Anthony, I'm going to take your word on that. I better not catch you ever watching this film again. Now, as far as the music goes, it's well there. Upon my first viewing, I didn't even remember the music. Some might say that's a good thing, I'm not sure. I guess listening to it on my second viewing, it does fit the movie. I mean, it's, I don't think it's my cup of tea. This is one of those films that was a box office failure and was ripped by critics at the time, but now many are rediscovering it and calling it a forgotten classic. I don't know personally if I, I agree with that. 
To me, all the characters, with the possible exception of Douglas's character, seems flat and one-dimensional. Maybe it's me looking at this film through 2022 glasses, but they all seem like Hollywood stereotypes. Poor Claire Trevor. She's just mean and bitchy all the time. No dimension whatsoever. You are my true and honorable wife. Then tell that hand to stop working under the table. Hmm? Making out with a big bounce right under my nose. Cut it out. Or I'll rock right out on you. Now. Then we'll wipe your nose and dry your tears when those lousy reviews come out. And Robinson's character just seems so blah, even though he's doing his best with what he's got. Dahlia Lavi is more there as eye candy, though I think she's supposed to be maybe the voice of reason, the one that keeps Douglas's character grounded, maybe? I don't know. And George Hamilton, he's a great actor, but he was just miscast as the angry young man here. With her, you must have made history because she couldn't wait to rush home to tell me she was through with me. What'd you do, get her drunk? How many rotten, filthy lies did you tell her? And for me, it's hard to watch a film in which all the characters are self-absorbed, selfish people. And I didn't find myself sympathizing with any of them. It's sort of first-world problems to the extreme, you know? And nothing is subtle in this film. Do we want to hint around about Douglas's past, that he was an angry, arrogant, alcoholic, before he was institutionalized? No, we're just going to flat-out tell you. He runs into his ex-agent at the airport and... And the agent fills us in on exactly what kind of a guy he was. I hated you when you were a star. You were arrogant, irresponsible. The most difficult client I ever had. Now that you're nothing, I still hate you. Only now I can tell you. Now, Minnelli, for years after, blamed the studio interference for the film's failure. But, but perhaps he just made a bad film. Or at least a film that wasn't commercial. And maybe, just maybe, the studio was doing its best to save it. We'll probably never know, because there'll probably never be a director's cut. A lot of times, they just never kept the outtakes. But like I stated, I, I enjoyed watching it. You know, it reminded me a little of Valley of the Dolls. A movie that's not good, but so over the top, it's enjoyable to watch. And the acting talent in the movie helps so much. I might have stated this before, but... Edward G. Robinson has always been one of my favorite actors of all time. Though, you know, as far as a film goes, Two Weeks in Another Town was better than Valley of the Dolls. But anyway, before we go, let's listen to that driving scene one more time. Racing down your hill, seeing that world dead ahead. Jack, we're in Rome. Not the horse in the hill. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. The apple is success. There ain't no pride. There ain't no shame. There ain't no sympathy. The Apple brings you everything. A little bit before I go. 
two weeks in another town was at the tail end of Minnelli's career. He only had a couple of films after, and I, I can't say I've seen any of them, with perhaps the exception of The Courtship of Eddie's Father. But whether you like two weeks or not, it should be remembered that Vincent Minnelli was one of the most versatile directors in Hollywood for years, and he was also the winner of the Best Director Oscar for Gigi. He was also the father of Liza Minnelli, as he was married to Judy Garland from 1945 to 1951. Now next week, I'm going to talk about a film called The Apple from 1980 by Menaheim Golan. And I hope I pronounced his name right. Now, The Apple goes beyond good or bad. It is, well, something of its own, something indescribable, a film that you must see to believe. And though it's not describable, I'm going to attempt to do so next week. And I'm going to talk about the original film and the Rift version that was shown on Rift Tracks. And we'll see how it goes. Now listen up. I have a Facebook page and I really would like you to join it. I would love to read your comments and uh, suggestions for films to watch. It's called Celluloid Days. I'm sure you can find it. Please join us. I have a Twitter account as well. It's at celluloid underscore days. I post little things there almost daily. And like I said, I'm looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me for any reason. You can even just email me to say hi. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday with the Apple. Take care, stay healthy, bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I'm